So I'm back with Matt McGregor talking about the week's acquisition headlines. Matt, thanks for joining me again. And we'll start out here with defense business brief from Defense One, defense giants gird for tax battle. So the quote here is Raytheon Technology CEO Greg Hayes issued a blunt assessment of the White House's proposal to increase the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. Raytheon's tax bill would increase about $1 billion, and that means I would have to reduce my investment by about 20%, Hayes says, during uh, an Economic Club of Washington event. The company currently spends about $5 billion annually on research and development. So I guess the tagline there is, if my tax bill goes up by $1 billion, I'm cutting $1 billion straight out of IRAD. And so my, my, yeah. my wonder going back into time would be like, of course, Raytheon merged with Textron, but when you got the Trump era tax cuts, did they also increase IRAD by the, the same amount that they saved in, in taxes or did it go to share buybacks and the, and the like? Yeah, I actually went back and, and looked at that. And it's I, I think this is like 2019, so it's maybe a tiny bit old, but basically what it showed is that they they used most of the tax money to buy stock back stock uh, buybacks they used 1.3 billion for that and they saw it's basically their tax rate is now like 8.39% so and that dropped from 35% so they got they had a huge huge benefit from those tax uh, that tax relief bill and then looking at their their irads like at 0.7% which compared to most of the big private sector companies like Apple, it's like 11.6, even Boeing is 3.2. So I don't know if Raytheon's on firm ground here <laughs> to say <laughs> that this thing is going to break the, break the bank for them. But yeah, it definitely, I think, I think the administration will have to do it in a way that, you know, keeps the prioritization on those key technologies so that they just don't fall back to uh, those old moneymakers, but like more legacy technology. And, and really puts the incentive on them to to get after the new stuff. So hopefully they can find that balance here with. Yeah, with doing definitely. This. Like Google's up near like 15%. And I think Amazon is 20% when I was checking on those. And yeah, I don't know. It just feels weird to me. Ultimately, I'm not really sure where corporate taxes are in my overall view of the world. Because I like to think about you just tax people, not companies, right? Like companies aren't people, individuals do things, not companies. The same thing with government. We always say government does X, Y, Z. No, it doesn't do any of that. <laughs> people do that. Now there's a whole bunch of groupthink and sociological issues and with respect to why they do that. But I just don't like this whole corporations are people concept. And I think capitalism has gone pretty far with it. And now everyone thinks, you know, corporations have to take these social stances and have these personalities. I tend to see that as disruptive. I don't know if I'm like on the outside now looking in. That was pretty much the way people took it since World War II and things seem to be changing here. Yeah, I guess the one, I agree, I don't disagree with you on any of that. I think, I don't know, corporations make decisions based on where they think the money is going to be. So I think they're, they're making some of those decisions to try to appeal to a certain market. I guess bottom line for me is that as long as they are giving back to the community what proportionally to what they get, because they get a lot, they get free you know, education, educated populace, they get infrastructure and all this stuff. So when I see that they're not paying any taxes or some extremely low number, I think somebody does have to call them on that because that's probably not commensurate with the value they're getting. And then if they were returning all of that value into R&D or into their workforce, then I probably would you know, I probably would maybe even back off on that a little bit, but they're not right. They're, they're putting it into stocks and other well, that's things the that, financialized, the old companies that are the ones that are the big guys in DOD, they all took like the general electric type of style of work where they're just going to not invest in IRAD because that doesn't look good on short-term quarterly profits, which that looks like a big expense. And how do you capitalize that and all these problems? So it just seems like the new firms aren't like that at all. And so I'm not really too worried about all that because at least in the commercial economy, the, the new firms replace the old. And it seems like those newer firms are, they're not just buying sharebacks or buying, doing buy buybacks on their shares because they realize, Hey, if I want to stay ahead and I don't want to end up like the guys that I beat out. <laughs> so uh, ultimately I'm not, but again, then we're in a, we're in a different place. So let's move on from here and on to the next topic, America and its military need a blockchain strategy from C4ISRnet. The quote here is, 
China's military publications have consistently proclaimed that blockchain technology will provide the People's Liberation Army with an edge in intelligence, weapons lifecycle, personnel management, and information warfare. Russia and China are sending overwhelming numbers of delegates to international forums working on blockchain. So I'm a big kind of blockchain bull in the long run. I think we're all obsessed with AI, but blockchain is that next wave. And then hopefully quantum comes after that. And I think we just need to catch that S curve and just not enough people are thinking about it. It seems like such a huge open white space. And we talk about zero trust security and DOD and all these other things about security. Why is blockchain like not a much bigger deal? I just have no clue. Maybe one one reason is that it's, I think there was one of the reports that was linked in here actually had a congressional letter on the front. And in it, he made the point that the blockchain is not well understood by everybody. And he's, but also the internet was not, you know, well understood by everybody. If you talk to people about the internet, you, you can see some of those funny interviews on BBC News and stuff where they're trying to figure out what the internet is. I think we're there with blockchain and maybe we just need to do a better education for our leaders to show them how it works, how it could solve some of their intractable problems and, and cost effective too. That's the other thing is I feel like the cost effectiveness is underrated. So, so anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm really uh, happy to see there, there's more literature on it. Maybe it's starting to break through and maybe the fact that China and Russia are working together, maybe that will get people's attention and they can go, hey, we really don't want to have, especially I saw the focus on the intelligent cyber defense systems. We rely a lot on cyber to, to get certain effects. And if they can counter that using blockchain technology, that's really bad for us. So yeah, maybe some of this will break through soon and start making more investments. Yeah. One of the things you brought up the internet, people always talk about, oh, the internet was started with the military and DARPA and then the commercial sector just took it and, and ran with it. And that actually wasn't how it was at all. Like the NSF had this authorized, like authorization of use policy and there was no commercial thing allowed on the internet. And if it wasn't for all these kind of new age type folks in the commercial sector trying to take advantage of that, like Mark Andreessen, it just never would have happened. The, the internet just would have been this kind of like niche thing that doesn't really do too much, but allows some people in education and military to connect. And blockchain seems it's like the, the opposite. And that's probably makes it even harder for government adoption because it started as this like spec first private. It actually started in the, the 80s. A lot of these concept around triple uh, entry bookkeeping and, and the like. But once blockchain got started, it was very speculative and you got Bitcoin and all these like booms and busts. And it seemed like nefarious people were using it. And so it just seems like that's the kind of mental model people have. And they just don't see that blockchain is the internet native way of doing literally everything. And so here's some major areas of defense that will be completely revolutionized in my mind through blockchain, secure slash trusted communications, internet of things, financial transactions, digital threads, 3D printing, supply chain, all those kind of go together in the same little bucket. And even this next wave that it will take a little bit longer, but decentralized autonomous organizations seems like another one. Yeah. And it's just in general, it's good for, I think one of the principles of a lot of these things like supply chain security and internet of things and all that is, is having transparency. And so it just seems to me like the ideal perfect solution for so many of these problems, maybe even the budget, <laughs> Eric, as you've I think, written about for achieving those transparency goals with, I guess later on, I think there's a, there, you have an article about how this might play with JADC2 and multi-domain control, even going after those net, the networks and having transparency between, is this data trusted or is it coming from the right place or yeah. So many applications. I really hope we jump on board the bandwagon soon. Definitely. So the next one here is meet South Korea's new KF-21 Hawk indigenous fighter from the drive. Quote, the Republic of Korea Air Force is expected to induct 40 KF-21s by 2028 and have the full fleet of 120 aircraft deployed by 2032 and are intended to complement the FA stealth fighters, 60 of which are being procured from the United States. So the KF-21 here, it doesn't provide the kind of all aspects stealth offered by the US fighters, but under the project it's worth eight, approximately 8 billion. South Korea is developing the KF-21 together with Indonesia, which agreed to pay 20% of the development costs and plans to acquire 50 examples for its own Air Force. And then just looking back in, in a previous article, I saw that KAI, the, the Korean firm that's actually building this, 
forked over 20% of the development cost itself. So the same as Indonesia. And so that was about 1.6 billion is, is the firm share. And when I look at, I looked at KAI and their total revenues in 2018 was 2.5 billion. So more than half of an entire year's revenue went to, is going to the development costs for the KAI now, or for the KF21. But of course that's spread out over multiple years, but I was just batting around. What would that be like for the F tier, right? And it's these development costs in the SAR at least was 28 billion. And then so 20% of that for the Air Force and for Lockheed Martin would have been about 5.6 billion just for the F3. And 5.6 billion, if Lockheed took that share of development costs, that's just 10% of 2018 sales and less than their profits in that year. Their profits were like over 7 billion for the year. So they could have afforded it. There could have been a similar model. Okay, South Korea is rolling out with their own fighter. It's not going to be the same thing. It's not going to have all the kinds of uh, bells and whistles, but it's going to have some kind of stealthiness. So what's your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, I do think at the beginning of the F-35 program, we gave some money for the prototypes for the first units, but I think they did. I think there was some initial investment. I don't know what the numbers was, but I do think I do think they they had some three milestone money. B. Yeah. When the $8 billion cost was post milestone B only. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, that's actually a pretty interesting point. Like how much more development cost was really in there. And then of course, Lockheed has tons of, it's probably got to be billions over the years of IRAD to fix, basically fix F-35 development issues. And then they're using no. that as a way to, to gain pr- proprietary rights over some parts of the aircraft. So more about this than me. So where would you push back on that? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like they got compensated for the most part. Maybe there was some internal money for some of the deficiencies, but I think. But that was the Alice system. They were claiming like we did at least some of the Alice system costs. So we get everything that comes out is Mark proprietary Lockheed. And that seemed to be part of the push to go to. Yeah, that that brings up a different point about mixed data rights. And if you have 10% of a corporate IP mixed in with 90% of government IP. It's, and But you need the whole thing to be useful. How do you deal with that? It's government purpose rights. What does that mean in some cases? Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's challenging. I don't know the numbers on exactly how much they put out their own money. I'm sure they put some, but they, they got reimbursed for the bulk of oh, it, I'm quite sure. Yeah. You're right. Yes. All right. <laughs> I read the, the funny thing. I wonder how South Korea does it, right? Because like for a US firm, I like, I read as a and that's independent research and development, of course, uh, is a profit center. <laughs> so I get profit on top of IRAD because I just bill it back as an over as an allowable GNA cost, general yep. administrative, and then that becomes the base upon which the the profits are calculated. So yeah, they're completely reimbursed for that, r- regardless of the IRAD that regardless of where it came from. But yeah, going back to the the fighter, that there were three things I really liked about what they did here, and I think it really shows that they're being thoughtful in how they approach this. One is they didn't try to invent their own engine. I think that was really smart. I think for these types of programs, if you try to go off and do um, a new engine, new turbofans, the the technology is so complex. The facilities, manufacturing facilities, there's so much investment. Really smart on them to not try to tackle the whole whole ball of wax. But okay, we're going to use proven engines and electric F414s. The other thing I liked was the fact they used an iterative approach, right? Like they're, they already acknowledge that this is going to be a pretty basic model and that they're going to build on that and do some more advanced derivatives in the future. And so I, I really like that approach too, is they didn't, from a requirements perspective, they didn't try to like try to cram every single thing in there. And I think that's probably one of our, one of our downsides of the F-35 is try to have it be all things. So everybody, the, the last one is it's pretty impressive that they are able to develop as many of the components as they are. So they're doing an AE, which is, you know, not a simple thing to do. And I didn't even know that they had a production for that. They're also building the, uh, the mission of flight control computers, which makes sense, uh, but they're doing the electronic warfare. They're doing the infrared search and track sensor, which is, has some, a lot of complexity to it. And they're doing an e- electrical optical targeting pod. A number of these things are actually some of the challenges the F-35 had uh, in development. EW was, was very complex. The Erst and the EOTS were all systems that had some challenges in it. So they're really, they're really taking on a lot on the electronic side, but not getting in the engine business. So I think this is going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, that seems to make sense, especially for South Korea, right? Like they they got a pretty hardcore electronics industry right there. And they could probably figure a lot of that stuff out. But with the engines, even China and Russia are still struggling 
with jet aircraft engines, it, it really is a, a really hard business to be in. And let's kind of stick with the, the aircraft here. F-35 Hitman, or sorry, put U.S. and partners' lives at risk in Forbes, but this is uh, General David Deptula. If the F-35 is such a bad deal, why is the Chinese Air Force trying to copy it in quantity? I thought that was just a good comment because I always look at foreign military sales as, or like what foreign competitors are doing as like a validation that we don't internally have in the Department of Defense, but it seems like a, a pretty good external benchmark. So what you're thinking uh, on that kind of what line of thinking there? I think part of it, right, is that they didn't have a lot of experience in this world. So back in the, I think it goes back to the early 2000s, there were a lot of computer uh, breaches and they, they got a lot of Lockheed's material for the yeah. F-35. Not all the, not like the really classified stuff, but they got enough to build a new aircraft on. I think back then they were looking at it as, okay, if the U.S. thinks this is the, the best thing, then we probably should try to try to emulate it. And we have all these drawings where we can build on. So I think it was a little bit of a, like a target of opportunity, maybe then a conscious, this plane has every aspect, everything that we want. And you can see that too with some of the, the J-20s, like some of the planes that they've come out with are remarkably different than ours. And they have different features to them that they think are important. So I don't know. So I don't buy yeah. like the fact that we're copying it, but go ahead, go ahead. It seems like they, some of those other models were just like Russian, like they had a heritage from Russian models. And, but I think you make a really good point because it seems like when they were starting those program, that program out, which it, I believe is the, the F-31 is their indigenous kind of stealth copycat, but they, that, that kind of started out, right? in the era of copycat China, where they just took anything yeah. that American firms were doing and it was just a copycat version in China. And it, it wasn't until probably 13, 14, 15 of the 2000s that you really started seeing China break out and do their own thing in the commercial tech world. And potentially that might be the same, the, the case in the military world as well, as they grow more competent and they now have the base of expertise building these kind of more elaborate systems and they can now go their own way. Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And it's probably good to know there's only so many ways you can build a fighter jet, right? Like it has to have short stubby wings and an engine and <laughs> tail fins. So it's, it's at some point, even like all the Russian variations of the MiG and the Sukhois and stuff, eventually they all look roughly the same, different pieces and parts. But, but yeah, I think you're right. They're, they're going to start doing it. They're getting in, they're getting in the knowledge business where they're not just reverse engineering and building on top of stuff, but they're actually creating new things. One, one thing I will, I agree with all of Dave Deptula's points that he made. I think the fact that a, a smaller number of F-35s can really do the job of a, a lot of a much larger number of legacy fighters. The fact that it has its capabilities, especially as Red Flag demonstrated, it can at a distance given its ability to target and acquire with, with this really advanced radar, it can, it can dominate the skies. So I think it's really important to that's to, to say that I don't disagree with any of that. I will say the one thing I don't agree with him on is when he made the statement, the Pentagon generally makes its investment decisions regarding military systems in the context of which alternatives provide the greatest cost effectiveness. I really wish we did that. I don't think that we do that very well. I think we partially as Congress doesn't often let us get rid of legacy stuff, but once we start a program, even if it shows to be not cost effective or maybe there's other ways to go. Sometimes we do stick. It's like this sunk cost fallacy. Like we do stick with what we know. And so I, yeah, I would maybe poke at that a little bit to say, we don't quite, we don't quite focus on that as much well, as we probably should. I would poke right back at you. I think David Deptool's point usually is they focus on cost per unit instead of cost per effect or sure. cost effectiveness. But I think the whole focus on cost effectiveness is how you get bad solutions because when you focus analytically on a cost effectiveness solution before you experiment, before you do MVPs, before you do anything substantial, obviously you have to rely on legacy concepts, on legacy costs, because those are the only costs and concepts that are available to you at that time that are well articulated. And if you have to articulate something before you do it, well, you're just stuck in legacy solutions. And that's why the DOD is stuck where it is today. Fantastic point. You're right. And this goes <laughs> back to our challenge of the baseline, like establishing baselines and doing life cycle cost estimates in perpetuity 50 years out. Yeah, all that stuff is silly. I guess my head was a little bit more where we don't often take advantage of the trade space to do things cheaper. 
with less exotic platforms, I feel like we have some biases that make us go towards some of the stuff. So that, that's kind of where my head was at on that. But, but yeah. again, like cost Good effectiveness, point. always in these, the, the strictures of the analyses that we have always force you into an economies of scale mentality. And they'll always be like, oh, learning dominates everything. And I need a bigger one size fits all of the, the jack of all <laughs> trades. And yeah. it's just easier to get that through Congress and get it, get it budgeted. One thing Steptula said that was interesting for me was when I was first flying the F-15 in the 1970s, over half the fleet was grounded due to a lack of operable engines. At one point, multiple F-16s were crashing each month. These challenges were solved as well those facing the F-35. There's definitely been problems in the F-18. Again, that's another one that that had a very long development timeline and, and a bunch of issues that got worked out. I guess my, my point would be like the F-16 and the F-18 were just straight up corrupted from the original visions of the lightweight fighter program. But I take right. his point. I think he's right on there. And it, it, yeah, I, it would be tragic to just do the same thing with the F-22 and just kill it immediately right now. I think just the trade-offs is, make sense. Like roll back some of that. You might get hit on the production rate, eat it. But as long as it gives you some money to go do other things as well as well as growing that force now that they're making into the role. I want to move on to something related here, at least with respect to uh, our discussions on the, the Chinese F-35 variant, which it actually is the FC-31. So that's where you get a little of the differentiation with their model. <laughs> so this headline here is, why did China cancel two of its super aircraft carriers from national interest? Quote, the South China Sea Morning Post reported that Beijing was going to scrap the fifth and sixth nuclear power carrier after it finishes the construction of two new steam-powered vessels. The reason? Technical challenges and high costs, including particularly linked to development of the latter two's vessel's electromagnetic launch system, the same system bedeviling the U.S. Navy. In a high-intensity conflict with the United States, the PLA Navy would likely struggle to use its carriers without exposing them to unacceptably high levels of risk. So it looks like China here, they, they put out some, some new carriers, as we've all seen. And the, the first versions had the ski jump. The, the third and fourth were flat-bodied, but still, like, they weren't nuclear-powered. And they didn't have the emails launched. And now the fifth and sixth were supposed to go full nuclear-powered and the emails. And both of those, it's not just the emails. It looks like they just weren't really able to figure out the, the complexity of the nuclear propulsion was also pretty great there. So any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I think it does show that building carriers is complex business. And it, it took us a long time to perfect it after World War II. And so we've had how many years in the business? So we've figured out all those issues. They've had really handfuls of years under their belt actually developing them. So not surprised that they're facing those issues. Emails too, I think it gets a lot of crap. But if you look at the value proposition, I think it's going to be worth the, the trade-off of all the issues they've had with it because it really does change the paradigm of how the carrier is constructed and all the issues that you have with the steam catapult. So I think I think that will prove itself eventually. I would just like us to have less dependency on carriers. So I, I, ironically, I think this might actually play to China's advantage because if we if we agree with their the military strategy that we think they're pursuing, which is not power projection as much as it is defense of the region, these aircraft carriers don't really make a ton of sense for them, especially with all the islands and stuff in the South China Sea. Yeah. So the only way that these carriers really seem to, to have like the, the return on investment is if they're using them to go off to other nations and show off their power or intimidate or in that approach. So I don't know, I guess it depends on where their strategy goes and maybe this will change some of their power projection um, strategies that they may have been considering. Yeah, I think you're right. With the Even with the United States, though, the power projection of the carriers in the blue water, I think it has a lot of capabilities. But if you're talking about chugging around <laughs> Taiwan, that thing is a sitting duck. <laughs> like how useful will it be in that context? I'm not really sure. There's a lot smarter people than me discussing this. And there's that return to small carriers. And by the way, you were talking about it took us a while to figure it out. No, it didn't. It took us five years from contract to award to commissioning. I think it was just a different time. I don't know how they did it in the 50s and why we can't do it anymore, but they got to four nuclear engines on an aircraft carrier within five years. And it was the first go around. Any thoughts there? No, I just mean the size and all of the other pieces that, yeah, I think we had an advantage with the nuclear piece, but I, I just mean all the other aspects yeah. of developing a carrier is, is it's not. Those World War II carriers were not the greatest places to be. So we definitely took a lot of lessons from World War II, probably, and 
built that in, but yeah, good point. But yeah, you also made the good point on the artificial islands. It's like, why do I need a carrier in this region if I have these islands? And it would seem an island is pretty vulnerable because it's just sitting there and it's massive and we could just rain missiles down on that thing. But it looks like first, these things are pretty big. Some of them are like six, seven, eight, nine miles around and you could go and you can move things around and try to create a targeting problem just because these islands are big. But then it also seems like they have a bunch of hardened things there, hardened fuel storage, hardened hangers, whatever it is. You can't harden a carrier necessarily. It's just a floating piece of metal that I don't think it's going it, to, unless you shoot a missile down before it gets to you, once the missile gets there, damage, it's not going to be World War II damage control time, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. And look at the cost of it, right? The fact that you can deny, even if you do take hits and you lose a couple of the islands, what you could probably, the effects you could put on your enemy and the the losses that we would still probably face from the forces there would be incredible return on investment. So I think that the island, the whole artificial island thing is really one of their better ideas. And it's probably going to be our, one of our toughest challenges, I think, when we start to try to do area defense missions where we're trying to take out surface air radars and stuff like that to, to bring in some of our other forces, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to cause a lot of complexity. There you go with the F-35 mission set, right? There you go. Yeah. B-21, <laughs> F-35. Yeah. Hope, hope they all yeah, work the way they're, they're advertised. So the next one here, and this kind of follows up on something we talked about last week, hypersonic missiles fail test launch from B-52 bomber from Defense One. So this is the, the Arrow hypersonic missile. They're trying to launch it off of uh, B-52. The, the test missile was not able to complete its launch sequence and was safely retained on the aircraft, which returned to Edwards Air Force Base. And Lockheed is also a big player in this. And they're saying that the company now has north of $3 billion in hypersonic related orders. So big deal, small deal. What's the deal? No, I think it's a small deal. We really moved quick with this program. And so we, we used rapid prototyping authorities and we wanted to get into production as quick as possible. So I think we pushed our the technical edge, our production, our production limitations as much as we could. So we we really were trying something here that we were not good at doing typically, and we're going to have some failures. I think they'll recover from this, just like SpaceX had a number of rockets blow up on the pad or not make it into the orbit they wanted or whatever. This is this one's going to have some issues. It's a shame that their first one was like they didn't get more learning out of it. I think that's the only thing that I feel bad about is it would have been nice to actually get it off the jet so you could see. Even if it didn't do exactly what it's supposed to do, you would, you would have gotten more learning by, by not getting it off the jet. You didn't really learn a lot. So, But I think they will recover and we'll start producing these things in the very near future. I hope you're right. I just, maybe I hope that uh, Lockheed is taking a similar development paradigm as SpaceX to get to where. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I didn't see it. They called it a setback. I don't really see it as a setback at all. I, I just think this is something that they're going to have to push through. And I was actually surprised at how relatively small the dollars were overall mm-hmm. that have been going into this. So again, it's not like they're 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 spending like tons of money. When you're talking billions, this is a big amount of money. <laughs> yeah. A few billion here, a few billion there, it starts to add up to real money. You know? Yeah. So the next one here is Army moves ahead on mixed reality goggles with Microsoft in 21.8 billion contract from the Army Times. So this was something that we had last week, but didn't get to talk to. So I'm glad another article came out that gave a little bit of extra information here. So quote, the goggle can sync with a company level cloud called the Bloodhound that processes the data and updates it with new information. The Bloodhound then connects with a larger network or cloud when accessible. In early work with the company Shield AI, developers are testing out 3D mapping scans of building interiors which could be piped into the goggle, allow a team to see the layout of a building before knocking down doors. This is a, a pretty huge deal. Like it was the IVAS program, a lot of good talk coming out of it in terms of their acquisition approaches. And it seems like this is going to be a big deal. It's like Microsoft, they won the Jedi. We'll see what happens with that. But now they won this deal, 20, 21.8 billion. That's probably the sticker price is not like they're, I don't know if they're playing on spending all that or if there's other types of sub-programs in there as well. If Microsoft gets in front of the eyes of the entire army, that's a big deal, right? Yeah, no, I think this program is a test to me of how much we can rely on the single vendor that has really been focused more on the commercial sector 
and now they're shifting their eyes to DoD, which is what we said we wanted, right? We said we wanted more commercial entities to help us solve our problems. So this is going to be a big trial run because this is an important capability, I think, for the Army to be able to provide all that situational awareness data that they can't really get to soldiers today. Network battlefield has always been the vision, and it just hasn't really come to fruition, or not to the extent that they wanted it to. So this really gives them a leap ahead in that. But man, we are relying on Microsoft for the networks, for the for the to, to manage the data. We're also relying on them to do most of the software development and the upgrades. So this is not an own the technical stack program. And so I think it will, will be a real test of, does this work or is the commercial sector not, not ready to fill this big role the way that, that we might want them to? Yeah, I think there's a lot to learn here. Yeah, it's interesting what you said there about whether they're owning the technical baseline or just basically outsourcing the whole thing. And I think it, I tend to be one that likes that, the concept of owning the technical baseline, but then Microsoft has their cloud. And like cloud is something that's a big infrastructure project that's going to move slow in terms of upgradability and and your ability to move data in and out. So it seems like it makes sense for them to just outsource that all to to Microsoft. And then the goggles and some of the software is just a rider on top of that infrastructure. But that's why I was happy to see Shield AI is having a play in this in terms of some of the capabilities. Because if Microsoft has the cloud background, like the cloud in terms of the infrastructure, and then they have some like the electronics in, ter- in terms of the goggles, and then allow that to be more open for other players and more like an app store type feeling. That seems like a really great place for me to, for, for them to be. And to the extent that this just feels like a regular procurement contract, that seems wrong. It almost feels like you need this like as a service type thing with regard to that. Let Microsoft take a lot of the development risk now and then boomerang that back. I think this will be as a service, essentially, because while we will drive some of the requirements, Microsoft is going to be doing all the all the software development. It's and, and my understanding from limited interaction with this program is that some of the stuff they develop will have a commercial use as well. So there's like they might be pulling some things into the commercial sector or things out of the commercial sector to meet some of the future needs. But definitely, yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. I think this will be. Yeah, this could be this could work out really well, especially if they do what you said there with the apps and allow a bunch of other companies to play and bring some capabilities. Yeah, I, the whole thing might have just fallen apart if government was like, I need GPR and everything, or even <laughs> unlimited rights. So if there is that yeah. dual use capability, that could have been like a reason to go for that structure. Yep. So the next one here is Pentagon releases guides for marking controlled unclassified information ahead of CMMC program launch inside cybersecurity. And so there's this whole like (laughs) controlled unclassified information. They call it CUI, C-U-I. So that's the the hip lingo now. But so CUI, they have this huge markings chart of everything that's CUI and how you're supposed to like protect that and mark that really. And it just is everything like personnel records, health information, general privacy information, anything related to procurement and acquisition, any financial data, all of this is controlled unclassified information. It's not classified. But there's still rules around it in terms of the CMMC, and it must be encrypted if it's moved anywhere and has to go through this lengthy DODI process if it wants to be decontrolled or released. So that just seems like a lot of bureaucracy. <laughs> oh, man, where to begin with CMMC? I think it's one of those things that will look back in 10 years or maybe even five years and say the intentions were very good, but the execution of this was just, I think it's just going to kill us. A couple of things. Like one is the fact that these we're using third-party assessment organizations because there's no way that the government can do these evaluations on all these different vendors. So in order for those those companies, those uh, third-party companies to get certified to be able to do certification, they have to go through their own certification through DCMA. So yeah, to your point about the, the how you encrypt and what information you encrypt, that's going to drive a bunch of overhead and probably unnecessary uh, costs. And then yeah, now you have these certifications of certifications of certifications. The biggest one to me, though, and I've been involved a little bit with this, just keeping on the fringe of it, but trying to understand like how it will impact innovative companies, small businesses in particular. And the thing that I really didn't like is that the determination for what level of accreditation is needed is really ambiguous to me. And who makes that decision is really it's uncertain. Conceptually, it would be the Milestone Decision Authority or the 
decision authority, the acquisition decision authority. But I think there's going to be a lot of people in that space, some saying, oh, it needs to be higher security, it needs to be lower. And I'm telling you the difference between level one and level three and level five is huge. Uh, the number of additional security controls drives a ton of additional work. And by not even allowing a company, this is what I really fundamentally didn't like about CMC, is like by not allowing a company to get a contract and then working with them to help them build up their cybersecurity posture, because they do need to do that. They haven't been doing a great job. So instead of working with them as a collaborator and saying, yes, once you get on contract within a year, you need to have certain controls in place and working with them on it and being, being selective about what controls are needed for the program. We're just doing this one size fits all. You got to meet everything and you can't even bid on the contract before you do that is just craziness. I think this one will... I think we'll start to see this one bite is in the bite is in the butt and we'll start retracting from it, but wish they were doing it a different way. Yeah, that was the Frank Kendall big drop in his prediction on that. And yeah, you're right. The, so there's a whole bunch of uh, third party assessors and you're right. It's funny that you got to have now DCMA's Defense Industrial Based Cybersecurity Assessment Center. They are assessing the assessors. And, and then there's also the CMMC advisory board. And they're, they've reviewed apparently like 98 of those third-party assessors, but then they have to get queued up for, for DCMA and it's not really clear how all that will work. But yeah, you're right. There's a huge chicken or the egg problem here for me, which goes along with the same as like cost accounting stuff, because it's yeah. like you have this huge overhead, but you have to eat those costs, especially if you're a small firm early. And those can be like in the millions of dollars or multiple FTEs for over a year to go figure that out. And it's only yep. allowable if you have an existing portfolio of contracts that you're working on. You can't, so you have to win the work and then you can expense it. But then once you win the work, how do you expense it? Because that was in a pr previous period and that by the cost accounting standards probably won't be allowable. So what are you going to charge as a separate CLIN? And then it's just not really clear how all that will work. And then you make the other point about the CMMC levels. It's just like the flow down. Like one of my issues for me is also not just like, is, do you get a one or a three or a five? I think everyone's going to get a three unless you're like mowing lawns, right? If you're mowing lawns, then you're a one. But like anything that you do is going to be at least a three is, is my understanding. And it, but then what happens if we have digital engineering and digital threads? It's like anyone interacting with the digital thread of a weapons program would immediately go to level five or whatever the prime was on that. And it's just really hard for me to see how that works. And that's why I'm a big believer in blockchain. It's just like blockchain is like a parallel path to that same place, it seems like for me. And instead of just being like, did you meet these criteria? And these criteria will quickly go out of date. And a lot of them are like having processes for this and being able to assess that. Blockchain just seems it's the real instantiation of cybersecurity. No, I don't disagree with you. The other thing we didn't mention is that the impact on subcontractors, like subcontractors are supposed to also have that same certification. So yeah, as you're bidding on a contract and you want to pull in some small innovative firm who has never done work with the government, but who has a great solution, you're going to have to go and get them certified before they can be part of your, your contract bid and the timing on, on doing that. Yeah, I, yeah, I would much rather they did something like you said with like blockchain, like here is a technology. Once you're on contract, you need to incorporate these types of things to secure the data and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. There, there seems to be so many other ways of doing this and achieving the same goals, but this seems pretty clumsy. Yeah. I think it's a noble cause, right? It's a noble yeah. cause yeah. and something's yeah. got to happen. It's just, it just doesn't feel right. And so I guess we'll just see, I think in five years, it'll all shake out, <laughs> but for the next five years, we'll see, does it like implant itself or does it get uprooted? So the next one here is the Navy is getting really into lasers from popular mechanics quote, the U S Navy is installing laser weapon systems on nine destroyers as part of an evaluation of the weapons potential. Eight of the lasers are lower powered weapons designed to dazzle or blind enemy sensors and drones. And this is the optical dazzling interdictor Navy <laughs> Odin. So we got another Odin out there. The remaining weapon Helios has the potential to destroy incoming cruise missiles. So it seems like the Navy in my respect, they've been going after lasers for a long time. They've been going after the rail gun for a long time, trying to put these on ships is now the breakout moment. Yeah. I always liked the rail gun idea. I thought that was perfect for the Navy. 
I guess the laser has a lot of potential. I love the dazzling piece because I think that is really important capability to uh, to really cause some disruption on some things, a really cheap, cheap effect to, to, to put on something, put on an enemy target. So I think that makes sense. I do have some, I guess I'm skeptical of the ability to use it to destroy incoming cruise missiles. And the only reason I say that is that the precision that's needed in terms of a safety perspective for a laser with that much power I'm just skeptical about the safety piece. If you miss the if you miss the the missile and you hit like another ship or or you you shoot like commercial airliners out of the sky, I don't know. I feel like it's going to have to be used in a particular environment that would allow a lot of those safety controls to be released. So, I guess we'll see how that works, but definitely interesting and I hope they can get it if it actually works and all the the con ops is better than what I'm currently <laughs> thinking. They can use it against maybe hypersonics too. Yeah. Well, that's my I guess my view is if you have to use the Helios for the incoming cruise missiles, I don't think you care you, you care much about airliners and these other things because you are in a high threat environment and you got to get shit done right now. <laughs> the next one here, Russian army to set up first military unit armed with strike robots from TAS. As chief of army, main staff, long Russian name I will not pronounce for you, reported to the defense minister... The first unit with strike robots will be set up in the Russian armed forces to operate five Urin 9 robotic systems or 20 combat vehicles. The Urin 9 combat, vehicle, combat robot is produced by the 766th Production and Technology Enterprise. It is armed with a 30 millimeter automatic gun, anti-tank missiles, and flamethrowers. So you just gotta, it's interesting because you see this type of stuff all the time from Russia and China, and they're just moving fast, like, doing these experiments and fielding things. And I know the army is moving fast with robotic combat vehicle. Then I don't know why it's like optionally manned, but optionally manned fighting vehicle. That could be another five years before we see that. But then Textron has their own autonomous tank that they've been working with uh, a smaller firm with. I think that's now a subsidiary of theirs. What's your thought on just like, how does the the, the U.S. kind of move faster to start integrating these things earlier? Because a lot of people have this perception, oh, these accelerators and the Army Futures Command and all these guys, they're great at just like doing these little demos, but not in getting it to fielding and getting it into these types of situations where you're using them regularly with, with the soldiers. Yeah, I guess I think the Army is is pretty committed uh, to doing the same thing. And I think they're, I think they're moving fairly quick with the RCVs. I think the safety piece, similar to what I said with the laser, I think the safety piece is something they're str- still struggling with in terms of testing these with soldiers and making sure that they're not going to do something they don't intend them to do. But yeah, I think they're I think they're on the same, maybe not on the same, exact same timeline. Maybe Russia's moving out a little faster. But this is the new warfare, right? So for I think for any warfare in especially in like the European theater, you're going to see robotic vehicles be at that forward, that leading edge taking some of those initial fires and you know, protecting the, the human forces behind them. The army already has a con ops and for all that. So I think we're, I don't feel, I don't, I guess I don't feel too bad that we're like that far behind on this one. I feel like we're, once we solve a couple of challenges, we could probably scale up and, and do this. The army's good at building combat vehicles. I wonder, I, I don't know if you saw that, that post I had last, last week with uh, Balaji where he was based, and actually General Robert Spaulding, they were talking about turning yeah. into a citizen kind of army structure. And I guess the, the idea there was like, if you have more technology and you're moving to drones, then you have more kind of dual use. You don't need this huge standing army, but like people mm. can help. There's some parts you, you'll need a nuclear enterprise and you'll need you know some standing, but you can reduce that. I wonder to what degree is milpers like the area like we always think about can we reduce like procurement and like maybe O&M and shift that into RDT&E maybe milpers it's like one of the areas that we can start thinking about shifting some of that into more RD and, and more modernization I guess the question is what level of autonomy do we want to give our systems and so I think right now all of these ro- robotic vehicles are still have men in the loop so they're they're not completely autonomous. They're not they're not trusted AI agents or whatever you want to call them. So I feel like there's maybe some more advancements we need in that space before we can start to really scale down the the forces. But yeah, there definitely seems like when you look out a few years, you think that has to be a natural evolution, right? If you're investing in all these autonomous uh, aircraft or autonomous combat vehicles or autonomous ships, 
that you need less people for that. Yeah, it does make sense. So I want to move on to the big kind of news in the acquisition world of the Space Force. And there's been a few articles coming out. Space Force to establish a new command to oversee technology development and acquisition from Space News. So I'm just going to abbreviate this. You have the SSC, the Space Systems Command, which will oversee a workforce of about a thousand people. It integrates several different areas, not just Vandenberg in, in Los Angeles, but also in Florida and in some other places. But it will not include the procurement organizations outside of SMC, which is the Space Rapid Capabilities Office in Kirtland Air Force Base and the Pentagon Space Development Agency. So they will not be part of the Space Systems Command, but they are talking about there's a new organization, SpaceWorks. I guess that will be aligned with them actually under AFWorks. <laughs> so that's under AFWorks. So SpaceWorks is under AFWorks. But they're actually the one that the article I, I found that was a lot more useful was the Breaking Defense article. And, and this went into a little bit more of the procurement authority. So congressional committees could decide to push up the October 22 deadline for the Air Force to nominate a new space acquisition czar. So Space Force and Air Force, like the Navy and Marine Corps, currently are sharing an acquisition executive. And by 22, they're supposed to, Space Force is supposed to have its own. It seems like certain elements in the Air Force are trying to push back on that. But October 22 is also when the SDA is supposed to roll into the Space Force, according to the FY21 NDAA. But this new organization chart that, that shows the Space Systems Command, it shows it having limited admin control over the SDA, the Space Development Agency, the Space RCO, and AFRL. What's your thought on how this is shaken out? Yeah, I had, I, I sat through the, the briefing on this and I had a lot of hopes for it because I thought they had some opportunities to do some really game-changing kind of things. I think the architect, standing up the architect is really smart because that seems to be one of the challenges in space right now is making all the different systems, current systems work together and the new ones work together and sharing data. So I think the space architect is a great move, but I think when you have to, one of the things that occurred to me is when you have to say it's not just a name change, the odds are probably high that it's just a name change. So on the whole, I feel like there wasn't anything groundbreaking about this move. It took a year apparently, but basically it's SMC with the launch stuff kind of put back in and the same PEO structure, the same, basically the same reporting chain. The SSC, the Space Systems Commander, was a PEO that reported to the SAE, but technically you're always reporting to the SECAF anyway. So I don't know. I'm not, I'm still curious too. The one thing they didn't really tackle in this, and you probably picked up on it, is that there are some other organizations or boards that are set up like the Space Acquisition Council, Program Integration Council and other things. And it's not clear how those different boards integrate the work that SDA might do, the, the stuff that SpaceWorks might pursue, or the stuff that the Space RCO. So a lot of moving pieces here that don't seem entirely cohesive to me or like a, a cord, cord. Maybe that's good, but I was really hoping for something more, more revolutionary. So I'm a little disappointed. Yeah. I'm not really so pissed with the space or the program integration council. Maybe that will transition to space acquisition council, which was required in the 2020 NDAA, but it has a lot of those people It has the SDA on there. It has a lot of the stakeholders from across the department, not just the air force, but like the whole department in there. So it, it feels to me like, why do you want that well-defined? Like you have the council, there's a board there, they're getting together if you could define exactly what their outcomes are of those meetings, then you've defined, what's the point of it? Because I could just put that into its own programs and I wouldn't need. So in my, I guess in my view, the open-endedness of the board and, and the collaboration is actually a benefit because that's how you get to interoperability. If you could define interoperability now and upfront and say, that's what it's going to be for the next 20 years, then you would just go with the current model of doing things. But if you can't, then I think that structure makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, I get, I suppose if there's not multiple, one thing with space is there's a lot of stakeholders. And so I think you do need to have good governance, right? That's one of the things we always say, because there will be very expensive decisions to make, and there will be decisions that made that impact many systems. So I think that architect is going to have a really big role and they're going to have a big enough stick to drive change. So I think as long as the uh, architect has the ability to, to influence 
And I think in a way, this isn't that different, Eric, from your idea with the board structure in terms of having a more central management of what investments are made and having the program PEOs be be accountable for their pieces. So if the board operates in a portfolio construct where it's very clear in the solutions that it allocates to the various um, acquisition executives and, and it allows them to go pursue solutions in their own way while also being governed by an overarching architecture that ensures, you know, everything works together because space inherently everything, there's a lot of things that need to work together. It needs to be a cohesive capability. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's right ways of doing this and maybe this structure is right. Maybe I was just hoping for something more revolutionary, but yeah, no, I hear your point. This could work if some of those pieces are executed. One of the, one of the things that actually did seem pretty new here was three PEOs in space systems command will report directly to the space acquisition executive, not the three-star space systems commander. And so I guess the space systems commander is just basically has control over the classified, the the space core out of SMC. (laughs) PO has always had a direct report to the SAE in terms of the uh, acquisition chain of command, in terms of writing their performance evaluation and stuff like that. I think that was done at the three-star commander level. But they always, I don't think that's completely radical. I think they always had that direct direct reporting chain. What's interesting here that I also didn't really completely know was that the chief of space ops doesn't have a lot of direct responsibility in this chain. Congress was very explicit in giving that to the assistant secretary uh, for space. And I think you're going to see that's going to be interesting how how those two entities work together, how the the chief and the assistant secretary work together, and how they how they solve some of those issues that may span. Does this go to the SDA? Does this is a space RCO problem? Given that's in a separate chain, versus does this go to the space systems command? So I think it's going to be interesting to see how that stuff plays out. Yeah, definitely. So we'll definitely be watching to see what happens there. There's one other stat from a different from a different article on this that I wanted to just bring up. There are 25 aerospace unicorns operating in Los Angeles today. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. So the next one here awesome. is the X named the Eagle 2. The F-15EX is designed to take advantage of recent advancements in F-15 development funded by foreign partners and new approaches in digital engineering to speed up the acquisition timeline. Two Fs will be delivered within nine months of contract award as opposed to the normal 39 months. So I don't know. I, I was originally somewhat skeptical of digital engineering in terms of its ability to solve a lot of acquisition problems, especially for new newer type things. But I think this is an area where it's, it's showing its strengths and Roper with his bending the spoon article there, he was making that point like, Hey, digital engineering can actually get us around this whole learning curve problem where you can start well down the learning curve. Like the T100 cost is like your T1 cost. So uh, pretty hopeful there. But I guess going back to the Deptula points, the F15EX is just the wrong system right now. You're taking for every F15EX, you could have bought an F35 essentially. But yeah, that was a lot of the argument when that was first proposed is I think they wanted, fundamentally, they wanted something that could do things that the F-15 couldn't. Carrying hypersonic missiles, for instance, the F-15 can do that on its center line. It's it can carry a ton of <laughs> a ton of weapons, and it's something that everybody's been been trained on. So keeping that line, but having a much more advanced copy of it, allows it to take advantage of all the training that's been done over the years. Keep a lot of those capabilities that that they that were like lower cost than the F-35. I think there were a lot of considerations for that. Flying cost, uh, yeah, flying hour cost was definitely a big one, but you're right. They're pretty expensive. And yeah, some people are like, why don't you just buy F-35s? But I think there is a role for it and it's pretty limited quantities. So I think this one's, I put this one down as a win. Yeah. So here's just a couple other uh, stats here. 10% of the F-15 CD fleet, that's the legacy fleet, is grounded due to structural issues with 75% flying beyond their certified service life. And the fleet has an average age of 37 years. Life extension is cost prohibitive, they say. So I want to move on to our last one here. Valkyrie drone launches even smaller drone from inside payload bay from Defense News. So basically here, the Valkyrie, which is like the autonomous, I'm not going to call it fighter, but combat aircraft, was able to open up its payload bay and during flight for the first time and release an 
Altius 600, a small tube-launched autonomous drone made by Area One, a Georgia-based company that designs unmanned area vehicle systems. And it can weigh up to 27 pounds, including six-pound payloads stored in its nose, and it has an endurance of about four hours. So I'm glad this one kind of came up because it also you know, brings back up Another article that we didn't get to last week, but that was Enduro buys tube launch drone developer Area One. Enduro bought this uh, firm that made the autonomous drone that was launched from another autonomous drone, the Valkyrie, which is a Kratos program. But so it looks like that's a a big move for Enduro and Area One is making uh, headway in all sorts of places. So here with the Air Force and Valkyrie, but actually the, the future vertical lift and the army is very interested in it as well. And I'm sure they have a bunch of other use cases. It seems like one of those kind of horizontal technologies. What's your thought? No, that's exactly what occurred to me too. I was like, when I saw that, I was like, if they're buying this, they must see like applicability for a lot of the other things that they're developing, the smart networking and some of the other capabilities that they're going after or or already or have already started, you know, started selling to the Air Force. So I love that they're that this is happening. I think the potential for for having an attributable a UAV that's maybe a little bit more costly than than we want, but hopefully that price can start to be brought down over time. But you have a attributable UAV that has other capabilities in it, so that it could launch. Maybe these are maybe these things are more are powerful enough that where it's powerful enough to take out a radar site or to at least disrupt various assets in the field. And you could you can launch these from afar and achieve effects without putting humans in danger, I think is uh, fantastic. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see where Andrew goes with it and what interesting applications that they, they pursue. Yeah. I, I just wanted to, on this defense news piece, there's a, there's a pretty great quote here from CEO Nick Alley, who I guess was the CEO of Area One, but now he's being on board. I think they're controlling Area One as a subsidiary of Anduril now. So it's not just being like gobbled up. But so here's a quote. Area One was founded in 2009. And by the way, I'm not sure if it's Area One or Area I, because it looks like a Roman numeral I. So that's one for me. (laughs) Area One was founded in 2009 by CEO Nick Alley, who once told an audience at Austin Startup Week that he had to borrow $10,000 from his parents to cover employees' salaries while he waited for government funding to come through. Quote, the practical advice I gave was that even with this multi-million dollar company that is well entrenched within the Department of Defense, we still haven't made it, Ali's told Defense News in a March 31st interview. So I thought that was just an interesting light into the kind of, it's hard going everywhere for startups, but it seems like it's even harder for Department of Defense. Yeah, I think Andrew's been a poster child for doing things that solved a military need, developing commercial solutions specifically for it, sometimes at their own cost, and then trying to sell back to the Air Force and facing a lot of hurdles. And it does show just how hard it is to scale. I think, and I think they've written on some of that stuff too. I think they've written some articles, like at least on LinkedIn, along with Steve Blanks about this of, yeah, we still make it really hard for these commercial companies that have the ideal solution to scale and to be able to keep them viable. So I hope yeah, I hope this is one where we can show that we're not repeating mistakes of the past and that we can actually scale Android or maybe, maybe have them be a defense prime that competes on some of the other big stuff that we're going to have to go after. So interesting to watch where they go. Yeah, I think Android started around the 2017-18 timeframe. I was talking about Area 1, and that was starting in 2009. And even oh, though it's 12 gotcha. years on, that's, that was the Area 1 founder who said that stuff. Back in 2009, it's 12 years on now, and he's still saying we're a multi-million dollar firm, but we're, we still haven't made it. <laughs> and entrenched with Department of Defense customers, Enduro was a little bit different, I think. I don't know what Nick Alley's background was. When Enduro was started with Brian Chip, who had a lot of time at Palantir, I believe, and then Palmer yep. Lucky, who was at Oculus, you had this amazing team. <laughs> like This team that was just like, okay, Venture just get, was putting in on it general catalyst started it but like each of their rounds they're getting like a lot of venture money but not everyone can be like that but maybe that's the way you just got to make your money in the private sector and then boomerang back and let's like proven founders to get the trust that they can go do it 
I don't know. The one thing I'd say is that 2009, of course, we were much worse at doing this because we didn't have AFWorks, we didn't have some of these other things we've, we've started, but I'm not sure that we're doing, I'm not sure we're doing that much better than 2009 in terms of scaling and in terms of actually buying some of these solutions and the quantities that the department needs. I still think there's a lot of barriers to that. So I think the fact that Area 1 had this problem in 2009, I really would hope that they wouldn't still have this problem, but I suspect from everything we've seen, that problem is still uh, alive and well today. So hopefully we can solve it at some point. And that's a good place to wrap. Matt McGregor, thanks for joining me on another edition here of the week's roundup on Acquisition Matters. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.